Welcome, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world, yes, really works. Welcome, each and every one of you, all of you happy warriors, you eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, yes, your finances, and your friends. Only you can triumph over those who unknowingly promote a dark and satanic abyss. You listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, you can defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity. Those hideous hermaphrodites running our media, education, and bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. But never fear, here on the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, unified in our determination, we can triumph and achieve success, first with our families, then our finances, and then our friends, after which we'll be ready to take on the saving of our frighteningly fragile civilization. Yeah, that's probably enough, don't you think? I think it's enough. As a, ma- as a matter of fact, I'm positive it's enough. I'm like, like the hydrogen atom that lost an electron and said to its friend, I think I've lost an electron. And the friend said, are you sure? And the hydrogen atom said, yes, I'm positive. Well, so am I, that uh, we want to talk about high class and low class. You hear it all the time. Uh, People speak of the upper class, the lower class. And what they're talking about is money, that's all. They're saying upper class and lower class are synonyms for people who have money and people who don't. And in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. Because upper class and lower class really speak to much more than money. Look, uh, I'm sure that you know plenty rich people who are incredibly low class, right? I don't know them personally, but uh, in the culture, if you keep up with things out there, even things you'd rather not know about, there are people with a lot of money who are totally low class. You also have many people who are poor with very little money whose children end up going to Harvard and Yale, or their children end up starting companies and doing fantastically well. These are poor, poor immigrants working double jobs. People who came from India, from Korea, from China, from Russia, from Latvia, from Iceland, from the United Kingdom, and many, many other places. Some of you are probably going to write to me, and your letters are always welcome. But uh, some of you will write to me about my um, my omissions. Why don't I mention immigrants from the Sudan, 
from Bangladesh, from Syria, from Pakistan. Why is it that so much more has been done in the area of business enterprise and high-tech development by immigrants from India and not from Pakistan or Bangladesh or the Sudan or Egypt? Well, um, not too many of those folks make it to the upper class. They, they don't. Uh, I'm not an enormous enthusiasm of Islam. And one of the reasons is that it holds its devotees back. It literally shackles them from making progress. Given the, the huge number of Hispanic immigrants that have come to America in the last 60 years, you'd expect proportional numbers of them moving into the upper class. And of course, I mean, of course, there are many, many people of Hispanic background who've done extraordinarily well, but is it in proportion? Is it in proportion to the Hispanic population? Not even close. Not even close. Why, why is that? What's going on there? Well, let me just mention one aspect of it. Here is one common feature of poor people who are upper class people. In other words, they're poor people on track to the upper class. And this is not a comprehensive treatment, but one of the common features of all the poor people who are headed to the upper class, they don't go on welfare. They have self-respect, not self-esteem. They've got self-respect. It's paradoxical, isn't it? The whole creation of welfare, that, that whole war on poverty that resulted in this creation of this uh, gigantic welfare state, well, it was intended to make everyone equal. And the truth is, it's hurt. If your family was on welfare when you were growing up, your journey to the upper class is much more challenging. It's a longer, harder journey. So how were they able to make such a terrible mistake? How were they able to think that by setting up a welfare system, they would bring equality. They'd, they'd give everybody a ramp or an escalator to the upper class. Answer, their mistake was that they believed that everything was material. Now, if your religion is secular fundamentalism, then one of the basic doctrines is that we live in a materialistic world. Everything is material. And therefore, they not only ignore anything that is spiritual, they don't even know that it exists. And so, for instance, they think, one of the, 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 the basics of materialism is that people are just sophisticated animals, right? Whatever is true for baboons and chimpanzees is true for human beings. Well, it isn't, because whether our sensibilities are offended or not, 
The truth is you can put a chimpanzee in a cage in a zoo and as long as it isn't cruelly constricted and as long as there is, is some uh, attempt to reproduce uh, his habitat and nowadays zoos all do that and as long as he's fed regularly and, uh, and uh, has enough water to drink that chimpanzee lives, and I'm not going to say happily because I'm not even sure the word happy applies, has any application to animals. So I'm not going to say happily because that would require me to know what's in its very basic brain. But uh, I, I will certainly say they live long, healthy lives with no indication of discomfort at all. And so the secular fundamentalists in uh, politics, in government, in bureaucracies, uh, in the agencies, in the welfare system, they assume that if you can set up uh, the Section 8 housing vouchers and food stamps, and you can, in other words, give people a place to live and give them food to eat, they're going to be just fine. They'll be able to thrive, just like the chimpanzee in the National Zoo in Washington thrives by all accounts seems to be doing just fine as the pandas in several lovely zoos around the world they do just fine and the presumption is that if we can give people the food and the water and the medical care and the uh, and we'll take care of their kids for them we'll take the children out of their off their hands from eight o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon as long as we do all of that for their for for them they'll be fine and it's a terrible mistake it's a fatal mistake you see if you put a person in a cage a human being in a cage that wouldn't work no forget a cage how about if you told a person you are now under city arrest i'm not even going to be cruel and say house arrest you are under city arrest you are going to be in los angeles california which has everything you could possibly want there is nothing that a chimpanzee requires that cannot be found in los angeles california and as a smart chimpanzee, you are being confined to the city of Los Angeles for the next 20 years. If you go out of the city, you will be severely punished. Now you hear that and you say to yourself, you know, fine, I mean, it's not a terrible thing. And yet we know from history we know from literature, we know from the human experience that for the first six months, the person is as happy as could be. He's so pleased not to have been put in jail, but to, be, to have been put in Los Angeles, he's fine. And for the rest of that first year, yeah, it's pretty much okay. Comes the second year and he starts thinking to himself, what would it be like? What's New York like at this time of the year? What's London like? I'd love to see San Diego. And then his sane voice surfaces and says, no, you can't do that, right? You've got to sit out the rest of your sentence in Los Angeles. Otherwise, the consequences could be too terrible to contemplate. 
by year three, he's going nuts. And by four year, by, by the fourth year, he is already starting to plan clandestine expeditions out of Los Angeles. He cannot stand being confined, even, even to the 150 square miles of Los Angeles County. Can't stand it. And he has to tear himself away. Freedom for the human being is a spiritual yearning, not a physical one. The welfare system was contrived by secular fundamentalists who have absolutely no comprehension of the spiritual reality. And as a result of that, obviously, it doesn't work. Clearly. I'll explain more in just a moment. But first of all, uh, here's, here's our deal. I prepare the podcast show for you. You visit my website. You read all kinds of free material on the website. You take a look at some of the videos on the website. You listen to other audio on the website. And yes, you visit the store. And you look through the store seeking something that can dramatically enhance your life, either in the area of faith or friendships or family or finance. And you not only acquire it, but you use it. Or maybe you share it with somebody else. Let them use it as well. Can I draw your attention uh, to the fact that Passover is rapidly approaching? And what is more, the Passover Seder is not just another dinner party. The Passover Seder is actually an encounter session. It's like an annual inoculation. Uh, It's an opportunity to regain control over communication and over intellectual and mental freedom. And so this is something that, that everybody ought to do. And the big obstacle is, of course, how on earth do you conduct your own Passover Seder? And fortunately, in uh, response to the many, many questions I got from all of you on how to do that, uh, we prepared something called How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder. It's an audio program, so you can uh, listen to it, make notes, add your own observations, and Uh, come up with your own set of notes that'll serve as a guide to your table as you decide to share the Passover experience. So kinds of questions that that you might have thought about or maybe you hadn't. For instance, um, when God introduces himself at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, wouldn't you have thought that he'd sell himself on like the biggest thing he'd ever done? He would have should have said, I'm the Lord your God who created heaven and earth. Ooh. But instead, we read, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. And so uh, in his mind, that then is a greater act. And sure enough, because creating a distinction between slavery and freedom, between uh, oppression of every kind and liberty, uh, that is a bigger thing. And so um, we have to understand that Egypt is not only the place where Israel was enslaved for hundreds of years, 3,000 years ago, but 
It's the place where we are enslaved to wrong thinking, mistaken ideas, and various obstructions on our path to our rightful destiny. And so the experience of going through the Passover Seder, and we uh, include a 31-page Haggadah, which means the telling, it's actually the book that guides you through it, and um, and it shows us that uh, this is not only about commemorating Israel's escape from Egyptian slavery, but far more important, it's about us escaping Egypt. In other words, what we have to understand is that getting out of Egypt isn't nearly as hard as getting Egypt out of us. Egypt is a word in Hebrew that means constraint. It means confined. Uh, it means narrowness. The various forms of thinking that inflict penalties upon us on an ongoing basis. And uh, we have to learn, for instance, that um, excessive taxation, confiscatory rates of taxation, lead to slavery, not just in what happened to the Israelites in uh, Egypt, but in Western countries, in fact, in many countries to this very day, where the strategy of laying ever heavier taxes and regulatory burdens upon the population leads in the ultimate direction of ultimately producing slaves to the state. And uh, Passover is a wonderful opportunity to actually spend a few hours on the night of the Seder reflecting, strategizing, learning, and above all, acquiring the tools of mental freedom that allow us to see what is going on even before it actually hits. And so if you would like to look into this, head over to the website, head over to the store. You're looking for a wonderful resource called How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder. It's in three volumes, and all of them are packaged together, and you get the whole bunch for you to have a very exciting experience this year, and that is to actually lead your own Seder. And so uh, in, on this, on this uh, occasion, on this show, I'm going to ask you to go to rabbidaniellappin.com, and there I would like you to um, take a look at a children's alphabet book, alphabet book. Um, you know how cleverly uh, some of the movie companies, the animated movie companies like Pixar and DreamWorks and Disney, how they uh, always drop in uh, adult-level humor as well, so as that all the adults who take their kids to uh, Monster Inc. and all the others over the years, they know that they're going to be entertained as well. They're going to th be things that make them chuckle too. Well, our children's alphabet book has, it's not going to be things that make you chuckle or laugh, but there are things there that are going to be very interesting for adults with any interest whatsoever in the Lord's language in Hebrew. So take a look at that. And then I'd also like you to take a look at the thought tool set. Right, the Thought Tool set is uh, three books containing over 150 ideas, Thought Tool concepts, uh, things that 
I'll tell you, if you do nothing else but use them for discussion points with your family around the dinner table or other occasions, you will be getting more than your money's worth. Old Joe Kennedy, the father of President John F. Kennedy, old Joe Kennedy, a real low-class person. He was just a low-class guy, uh, had loads of money and uh, owned uh, more than one prestigious building that just brought in so much money that the only obligation that he raised his children to feel was to deposit the rent checks. A low-class guy for a lot of reasons. Um, not surprisingly, the family uh, started sliding downhill. And today, there's really not a whole lot left to talk about when it comes to the Kennedys, is there? Right? It's, it's pretty much over. It's gone. Uh, low-class low people do not maintain ongoing vitality. On the other hand, upper-class people, with even without, without a lot of money, you know that you could do well to invest in them because they're going to work hard, their values are good, and their children are going to become educated and they're going to become high earners, and pretty soon they're going to look upper-class in every way. But the, the truth is that it's worthwhile learning to recognize people who are upper class or lower class early. And uh, more importantly, it's important for us to realize that the way to upper class finances is to acquire upper class values. And the way to lose your assets, if not you, then your children, is to adopt low-class values. And that really is something, I think, that provides a lens of clarity into the social science of the United States of America at the present time. It's just not hard to see. Low-class values, they're not a function of color. It's not a function of race. Many, many, many black people, um, yeah, they do have low-class values, unfortunately. But then many, many white people, particularly in Appalachia, and if you go outside of the United States of America, uh, very much in the, in the United Kingdom, a lot of white people with very, very low-class values. And uh, what one of the things that low-class values do is they perpetuate a lasting underclass within a society because lower-class values means that education is not important. It means self-restraint is not important. It means that sexuality and and early sex, sexualizing and sexual acting out uh, is absolutely fundamental to life. All of these things uh, produce a lasting lower class society. Tragic, absolutely tragic. 
because there's nothing that anyone can do from the outside. It can only be done on the inside. Meaning that obviously pumping money at the situation not only doesn't move people from the low class to the upper class, it helps to perpetuate their stay in the lower class. Tragic! That's what's really going on. And so how do we identify primarily what is the easiest way to distinguish between upper class and lower class? Um, it's a function of time. In other words, upper class people care as much about the future and the past as they do the present. Lower class people care only about the present. Do you get it? It's it's really it's really quite easy. Now, uh, I said that old Joe Kennedy was a low class person, but didn't he care about the future? Um, he cared about the prestige and power that would uh, come to his family if he could get one of his sons into the presidency, and that's what he worked towards doing right? Uh, people who think long-term, people who think about the future and the past, uh, what are some of those characteristics? Well, people who think about the future uh, think about investing rather than spending. Uh, people who think about the present only <laughs> spend everything they've got. What's more, since future is not important, debt becomes totally acceptable because you don't even see it. You are so focused on the present. And I'm sure that f for you listening right now, it is probably even difficult for you to relate to the idea of somebody who thinks nothing of assuming debt because he doesn't see the future. Whereas upper class people, the future is so alive and so real that they are capable of doing the opposite. They are the ones who can indebt the present, if you like. In other words, uh, they work hard in the present because the future, when they will be able to enjoy the fruits of all that effort, is so visible and so clear. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the exact inverse of the low-class person. The low-class person doesn't see the future and only therefore lives in the present. The upper-class person sees the future so clearly that it allows him to do things, to self-discipline. It allows him to restraint. It allows him to uh, work hard. All of the things that involve deferment of gratification are possible because he sees the future as clearly as he does. The past, that's also part of being upper class. I see the past. What is the past? Well, the past is the expectation of my parents. The past are the values that have been a part of our family. The past is not bringing any discredit upon the family reputation. All of these things have to do with the past. A sensitivity to the teachings and the traditions of the past. Yeah, right. Obviously that makes a difference to what I'm doing today.
the way I live in the present is enormously impacted by how clearly I see the future and how clearly I see the past. And so it's perfectly obvious now that for a low-class person, abortion is just a perfectly natural and normal thing. It's wiping out the future for the pleasures and values of the present. It's obvious. For an upper-class person, abortion is so hideously unthinkable because it's tampering with a future you have no right to tamper with. So, upper class and lower class, really easy to identify in terms of whether they are living in the present with complete disregard for the past and for utter indifference to the future. Upper class, in a sense, the present is the least important. The past is terribly important. The future is crucially important. People who are upper class and therefore relate easily and comfortably to the future, well, those are people who can give very easily because giving is a form of investing. Right? Low class people live in the present. You spend everything. It's like there is no tomorrow. But uh, upper-class people see the future as clearly as if it was right here already. And so investing is easy. So is giving. Because giving is a form of investing. When you give, you are investing in the future. Whether it is in the relationship that is being helped by the giving. Whether it is in a, an improvement in overall social conditions, but whatever it is, giving is something that upper-class people can do far more easily than low-class people. Right? I remember noticing the charitable donations that were published by a guy called Al Gore, who once ran for president. Um, honestly, think back to Al Gore. And, uh, well, all right, fine. I, um, uh, I will leave the thought unsaid and uh, my high regard for your alertness and insight assures me that you know exactly what I was going to say. But uh, uh, Al Gore's charitable donations one year was a receipt from Goodwill for $60 worth of old clothing. That was the extent of his giving. And I noted at the time, low-class guy, absolutely low-class guy. Low-class people are getters, not givers. They just want to get stuff. Low-class people, getters. Upper-class people, givers. Low-class people, spenders and consumers. Upper-class people, savers and investors. It's, it's very, very simple. It really is. And so it's not hard to go from there to understand that if there is one thing, if there is one value system that stimulates upper-class living, if there's one value system 
that tends to help people gain the attributes of the upper class, that would be the Judeo-Christian biblical belief system. That's what it is. That's what it is because it stimulates an ability to understand the past, see our connection to the past, and cherish that connection, and it helps build a connection to the future. It makes us recognize that the future is real. The details of an ultimate messianic redemption in which God makes everything good in the world, the details are challenging to incomprehensible, but it doesn't matter. There is a time spectrum, and the Bible helps me get used to the idea, even as a child, even as a young person, you get used to the idea that you know here you are in the midpoint on the spectrum, and behind you stretches important events over the, over the course of history behind us, and forwards a positive awareness that the future is real. It will arrive, and we need to be prepared for it. Right? You are going to get old one day. You're not going to be able to work as aggressively as you did in the past. You need to prepare for that. The answer of the low-class person is the government's responsibility. Government will take care of me. And that's exactly what they believe. All right, so you get the idea. And uh, what we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at just a little bit more of just how it is that uh, biblical outlook helps guide us to a healthy relationship with time. Can I draw your attention uh, to the fact that Passover is rapidly approaching? And what is more, the Passover Seder is not just another dinner party. The Passover Seder is actually an encounter session. It's like an annual inoculation. Uh, it's an opportunity to regain control over communication and over intellectual and mental freedom. And so this is something that, that everybody ought to do. And the big obstacle is, of course, how on earth do you conduct your own Passover Seder? And fortunately, in response to the many, many questions I got from all of you on how to do that, uh, we prepared something called How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder. It's an audio program, so you can uh, listen to it, make notes, add your own observations, and uh, come up with your own set of notes that'll serve as a guide to your table as you decide to share the Passover experience. So kinds of questions that, that you might have thought about, or maybe you hadn't. For instance, um, when God introduces himself at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, wouldn't you have thought that he'd sell himself on like the biggest thing he'd ever done? He would have, should have said, I'm the Lord your God who created heaven and earth. Ooh. But instead, we read, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. And so uh, in his mind, that then is a greater act. And sure enough, because creating a distinction 
between slavery and freedom, between uh, oppression of every kind and liberty, uh, that is a bigger thing. And so um, we have to understand that Egypt is not only the place where Israel was enslaved for hundreds of years, 3,000 years ago, but it's the place where we are enslaved to wrong thinking, mistaken ideas, and various obstructions on our path to our rightful destiny. And so the experience of going through the Passover Seder, and we uh, include a 31-page Haggadah, which means the telling, it's actually the book that guides you through it, and um, and it shows us that uh, this is not only about commemorating Israel's escape from Egyptian slavery, but far more important, it's about us escaping Egypt. In other words, what we have to understand is that getting out of Egypt is nearly as hard as getting Egypt out of us. Egypt is a word in Hebrew that means constraint. It means confined. Uh, it means narrowness. The various forms of thinking that inflict penalties upon us on an ongoing basis. And uh, we have to learn, for instance, that um, excessive taxation, confiscatory rates of taxation, lead to slavery, not just in what happened to the Israelites in uh, Egypt, but in Western countries, in fact, in many countries to this very day, where the strategy of laying ever heavier taxes and regulatory burdens upon the population leads in the ultimate direction of ultimately producing slaves to the state. And uh, Passover is a wonderful opportunity to actually spend a few hours on the night of the Seder reflecting, strategizing, learning, and above all, acquiring the tools of mental freedom that allow us to see what is going on even before it actually hits. And so if you would like to look into this, head over to the website, head over to the store. You're looking for a wonderful resource called How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder. It's in three volumes and all of them are packaged together and you get the whole bunch for you to have a very exciting experience this year and that is to actually lead your own Seder. You are already accustomed to me reminding you that the website is rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, love for you to go over there. Take a look at the uh, Thought Tool set. Uh, you know, you can, you can read about it. I don't have to take a lot of time telling you about it here, but uh, I will tell you that there are many, many times, whether it's with friends, with family, um, I sometimes find myself, it's not often, but occasionally I find myself in a group and uh, it begins to be a gossipy conversation. And I, I, I hate conversations about people. I really do. I don't care who they are. I just, it really gets my skin crawling. And what I do is I, and my wife has seen me do this all the time. I, I simply dig back into memory of, of some recent thought tool that is still on my mind. And, uh, and then I say, 
uh, excuse me, interrupting, but I would really be interested to know what some of you folk think about this problem, about this issue, about this question. Here, here it is. And then, you know, it's like everyone forgets what they were talking about. Everyone gets involved in this. And, and it's wonderful. I love that. Well, uh, the Thought Tool set has more than 150 of these ideas. And uh, you will find it there on the website at the store. Uh, you will also find a children's alphabet book, which, as I mentioned a little earlier, uh, has surprising value for adults as well. But again, read about it at rabbidaniellappin.com, the alphabet book and uh, the thought tool uh, set. And we carry on exploring the further damage that the smear of secularism has inflicted on American society. Uh, look, uh, imagine, you know, somebody has the job of being a furniture mover, right? That's, that's what he does, right? Five days a week, six days a week, um, he helps people move. He's, he's carrying uh, bookcases and furniture and appliances out of houses and into trucks and from trucks into houses. That's what he does. Well, one of the side effects of that is going to be that he's going to become a, a muscular, brawny, strong man. That's just a side effect. Well, uh, that's not what he's planning on doing, right? What he's planning on doing is a, a day's work for which he gets paid. And he goes home with his pay and he's perfectly happy. He may not even be aware that while he's doing all that, he is also becoming uh, uh, the possessor of a an enviable body that many other men pay good money to try and obtain. Okay, when you study Bible, when Bible is part of the culture of a society, as it always was in America until relatively recently, uh, and people knew it. I mean, it was, it was part of schooling, it was part of college, it was part of going to church. People knew the Bible. One of the side effects of that, it's not necessarily what you do it for, but one of the side effects is that you find yourself a, a person conscious of past and future as well as present. You become the sort of person who makes decisions in the light of my background, my past, my history, where I'm going, and how what I'm contemplating now doing impacts the past and impacts the future. But when you strip away Bible study, when you extirpate the centrality of the Bible from a society and from a culture, one of the casualties is the loss of the expansive time frame. And uh, the culture, not necessarily you, not necessarily your sister-in-law, not necessarily me, but as a whole, the society in general uh, becomes present fixated. So it's a society that both on an individual and a social level is much more comfortable with debt. Um, it's a society in which sex loses its relationship to the future and its past. Um, it's a society in which everything is done in terms of present and immediate gratification. Not everybody, but more and more people, maybe not you, maybe not in your society, but you see, we're all impacted by one another. And when out of 300 million people, shall we say there were 20 million people who were 
uh, present fixated, the country was doing very well because another 280 million were, uh, were, were focused on past and future more than on present. But when we reach a point where 60%, 70%, 200 million out of 300 million Americans are present focused, well, now everything's changed. And the culture begins to show the, the bruises and the wounds and the damage of that tendency. And when you are somebody who is as much concerned with past and future as he is with present, maybe you're more concerned about the future and the past than the present. Well, uh, then you are an upper class person and you are on track for you and your family, your children, and yes, even your grandchildren to have a much better life. What's more important, you're also uh, helping to shape a positive society, a society that has its priorities correct. And so liberalism uh, triumphs in its removal of Judeo-Christian biblical faith from society and replacing it with the state-ordained religion of secular fundamentalism. And, uh, and liberalism is thrilled with us, absolutely thrilled. And we say to them, but don't you understand? You've turned us into a society that no longer cares about the future. And you see that in the erosion of our military and the erosion of our national wealth and the rise of our national debt and the growing number of people uh, who don't work. This is all part of the same syndrome because you don't think about the future. You took away that vitamin that nourished the country. You removed that biblical vitamin that provided a, a, a worldview that took the future into account. And they say back to you, what are you talking about? You are totally wrong. We are the only ones who really care about the future. We haven't heard you worried about global warming. We haven't seen you concerned about climate change. We haven't seen you really worried about rising seawater levels. We are the ones. Okay, this is like a, a child, you say, um, you must go and tidy up your room. You've got to clean your room once a week. Uh, by the time before you go to bed Sunday night, the, your room has to be tidy. So you start off with a tidy room every week. And the child says, look, I would, but I'm actually focused on something much more important. Um, I'm preparing in my mind how I'm going to welcome the president when he arrives to visit us. And you say, what are you talking about? You say, well, do you know the president isn't going to visit us? No, I don't know that he's not going to visit us. I don't know that he is going to visit us. Well, isn't that more important than cleaning my room? Surely, right? And you say no, because part of being in touch with reality, part of knowing how the world really works, is knowing the difference between perhaps and maybe knowing the difference between perhaps and maybe and certainty, knowing the difference between something that may or may not happen and something that will happen. 
And that is where the left loses it. Because it is so much more comfortable for your child to say, I've got to prepare my speech for when the president arrives. And you have absolutely no way of monitoring uh, what of any value, if anything, he's doing. Because you might say to him, well, we don't know the president's coming. I mean, how long are you? Well, I, you know, as long as it takes, we don't know. I, I'm not sure when he'll come. I've got to be ready. Fine. What is your speech about? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, if you'd leave me alone, I'd work on it. You know, or uh, you know, the, that great Californian uh, farmer philosopher, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, he, he puts it so well, you know. He, he pointed out how uh, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, um, listen, is there not enough wrong with New York? Everything from a city that uh, was not capable of dealing with a snow blizzard while he was, while, I'm to not talking about the current mayor of New York, but while Bloomberg was the mayor. Uh, that was a point that um, that Hansen made, that uh, a massive blizzard, people couldn't get out of their house for days because the man, the mayor messed up and couldn't get the city plowed. And what was he busy with? He was busy with the evils of smoking and getting restaurants to put on their menus how much fatty foods there are and banning soft drinks that have sugar in them. All of those things. Oh, he was so busy taking care of all those things. Did nothing about plowing the streets of snow. Did nothing at all about crime. Did nothing at all about filth piling up when the garbage men didn't collect stuff. You couldn't walk down some Manhattan streets because there were so many piles of black garbage bags filled with stench. But, oh, he was so busy with smoking and sugar drinks. Oh, yeah. But this is a very normal thing. This is not just Mayor Bloomberg. And this is just not your child who you've told to tidy up the room. No, this is part of government in America. It's been this way for decades already. That's what they do. They will not address the real problems that, for which they're responsible. They won't touch that. They won't deal like Seattle. Seattle needs roads desperately. Build some roads. But no, a county government in uh, the Seattle region, the, the, uh, the mayor, the city council of Seattle, oh, they're talking about bicycles and they're working on recycling. They're now uh, setting up a police system to monitor what goes into your garbage and recycle so you can be fined if the garbage police nosing through your garbage on the curb will notice that something that should have gone in recycling went into garbage that they're doing but are they able to do anything about riots in the streets when uh, world trade organization uh, rioters made it impossible to do business, or when university students block roads, or when there's just sheer crime, or where homelessness makes it impossible to function. No, that's not what they're dealing with. Or um, how's about Chicago at the present time is a good example. The mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, used to be a Barack Obama sidekick. Um, he is working on... Um, 
combating President Trump's immigration law. This is what he's obsessed with. Tell me, can you think of maybe one little problem that Chicago has that maybe is more important for the mayor to do? But you see, it's like your kid. Tidying the room is hard work. Preparing a speech for a presidential visit or, or uh, uh, thinking about fairy dust, all of these things are easy. And so uh, is Mayor Rahm Emanuel doing anything at all about the absolute epidemic of massacres that have plagued the city for several years already? No, he can't do anything about that. But, oh, he is so busy combating the, the, the president's draconian immigration laws. Right. Or uh, uh, President Obama himself. What did he do? Left race relations considerably worse after by the time he left office than when he came in. Put many, many, many more people onto dependency in the welfare system by hiring thousands of social workers on, the, on, the, on your nickel to go around telling people how they can get Obama phones and they can get food stamps, messes up the healthcare system and leaves it a mess. So all the things he should do something about, he doesn't. But you'll remember that Obama was lecturer in chief. He constantly wagged his finger at us uh, and, and the need to... Uh, uh, to cool the, to, to stop global warming and to lower the sea level. Uh, Obama was full of that stuff. He promised he would do it. <laughs> right, there was a man called King Canute who promised to hold back the tides. Um, Barack Obama was about as successful as he was. So this is what these people do. These promises about, oh, they, what are they got to do about the future? But this is mis misusing and abusing a responsibility for the future. It's taking future problems that don't exist, making them up, and then, by the way, turning to the so-called scientific establishment and the kindergartens of American society that some people call colleges and universities, and giving them grants to prove that, yes, we do need to give federal money to uh, solar energy companies like Solyndra and having them go under. Yes, we must do that because the threat of rising ocean levels is real. Oh, it's so real. It's not. But what I want to make clear is that it's much more seductive for our highly paid representatives governmental rulers and bureaucrats to worry about those things than about the very real things that affect our day-to-day -day life. I promise you, your life is not going to be impacted tomorrow by rising seawater levels or by global warming or by carbon ex um, or by carbon uh, uh, production. You don't have to worry about that, I promise you. What do you have to worry about? increased taxation, increased crime. Those are the things you have to worry about. And by the way, uh, if you haven't already heard the show of a few weeks back, please go and listen to it because one of the things people will tell you, oh, crime's under control, murders are down. No, they're really not. 
all that's happened is that superior medical technology has managed to save the lives of many, many more people who were shot than used to be. But if you don't measure murders, but you measure shootings that could have been fatal, you will see just how much higher. And is Chicago government and Mayor Rahm Emanuel doing anything about those things? No, of course not, because he shows that he is worried about the future, right? He's worried about what's going to happen to immigration, right? Is is your life going to be hurt if immigration is cut off tomorrow? Let's imagine there was a total moratorium on immigration, and I can haul out, and you could haul out a hundred tragic cases of separated families, and we could bring out every kind of possible sad story. But still, seriously, between you and me, your life and my life badly impacted by change of immigration? No. It'd be just fine if they stopped immigration tomorrow. Be fine. Right? Some people will be hurting, but the overwhelming majority of Americans are fine with that. But no, Mayor Rahm Emanuel has to fight the attempts of the administration to curb immigration. But he does nothing about hundreds and hundreds of people being killed in Chicago. By the way, the place where guns are banned, I might mention. Um, do you remember when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California? Uh, he ran up California's debt to unbelievable figures, which, I mean, for the state of California to be $25 billion in debt was unbelievable. And what did, uh, what did uh, Schwarzenegger get obsessed about? What were the things he really were worried about? Um, wind power, solar power, global warming, green energy, right? Nothing that affects the lives of Californians today or tomorrow. Nothing at all. Because they go to the future, take things that are not real, pretend that they're real, and thereby remove from themselves all responsibility and obligation to take care of the real problems. Talking of California, uh, Jerry Brown, right, Governor Brown, again, obsessed with climate change and uh, didn't authorize the construction of a single reservoir. Do you know that 50 years ago, California had a master water plan, which involved the building of more reservoirs. Had those reservoirs been built in the intervening time, California hasn't built a reservoir for 50 years or more, but had California just followed its own plans from only 50 years ago, now the millions of acre-feet of precious water that have just been released. Do I need to remind you of the views of uh, Lake Oroville? Water pouring down, gushing down the spillway at such a rate that it ripped up the concrete bed of the spillway. And that's, that's, only, the, uh, the, that's only one of many, many, many uh, reservoirs around California that are pouring their water out into the Pacific Ocean. But here's the interesting thing, and this is something that, um, that Hansen points out, that if only California's original plans had been filled, had they only built the reservoirs they planned to build 50 years ago, all that water could have been captured, and California would not 
have had to worry about water for years to come. Seriously. All this nonsense about California. And you remember, this this the governor of California did do, right? No watering your lawn, water restrictions, water rationing. That part they do. But all that was needed was for him to put as much effort into building reservoirs as he put into the stupid bullet train running through parts of the central, which it isn't even doing yet, probably never will happen. But the energy, the time, the political effort, the money expended on this ridiculous train and the water that really would change the lives of Californians. No, that they don't do anything about at all. And so one has to realize that um, we're talking not only about being aware of the future, but also how the world really works. The, water, the world really needs water. Whether or not it needs a bullet train, particularly one, that every rational analysis assures you that will never happen and be never built. And again, I don't want to go into now, I don't want to take the time on why that is, but it is so overwhelmingly obvious that something that is having so much trouble to reach fruition through farmland, how on earth does anybody believe it's going to work in the urban areas of San Francisco, Sacramento, Los Angeles, San Diego? Not going to happen. That train isn't going to happen. And it doesn't change the lives of people in California because right now people who need to go from one place to another fly or get in their cars. That's what they do. And they're doing okay. Would it be lovely to get in a, a train and go from LA to San Francisco in an hour? For people who need to do that, it would be very nice. But for the rest of us, reliable water supplies would be better. All right, I'll stop on that. You, I know I sound as if I'm a bit obsessive about Californian water, um, and I don't even live in California. I have in the past, but it is such a good example of how bad government has become in the United States of America. Let me tell you something extraordinary about past, present, and future uh, and the Lord's language, something which, again, gives us some insight into uh, why it is that the Bible, as long as it was central in American life, somehow kept us focused on the realities of the future, the realities of the past, and, yes, the realities of the present. And today, this mix of government and bureaucrats and celebrities and academia and politicians managed to fool us into overlooking their malfeasance when it comes to things that really matter, and we give them awards and kudos and our hard-earned money to fool around with things that make absolutely no difference whatsoever to our real lives. Can I draw your attention uh, to the fact that Passover is rapidly approaching? And what is more, the Passover Seder is not just another dinner party. The Passover Seder is actually an encounter session. It's like an annual inoculation. Uh, it's an opportunity to regain control over communication and over intellectual and mental freedom. 
And so this is something that, that everybody ought to do. And the big obstacle is, of course, how on earth do you conduct your own Passover Seder? And fortunately, in uh, response to the many, many questions I got from all of you on how to do that, uh, we prepared something called How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder. It's an audio program, so you can uh, listen to it, make notes, add your own observations, and uh, come up with your own set of notes that'll serve as a guide to your table as you decide to share the Passover experience. So kinds of questions that, that you might have thought about or maybe you hadn't. For instance, um, when God introduces himself at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, wouldn't you have thought that he'd sell himself on like the biggest thing he'd ever done? He would have, should have said, I'm the Lord your God who created heaven and earth. Ooh. But instead, we read, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. And so uh, in his mind, that then is a greater act. And sure enough, because creating a distinction between slavery and freedom, between uh, oppression of every kind and liberty, uh, that is a bigger thing. And so um, we have to understand that Egypt is not only the place where Israel was enslaved for hundreds of years, 3,000 years ago, but it's the place where we are enslaved to wrong thinking, mistaken ideas, and various obstructions on our path to our rightful destiny. And so the experience of going through the Passover Seder, and we uh, include a 31-page Haggadah, which means the telling, it's actually the book that guides you through it, and, um, and it shows us that uh, this is not only about commemorating Israel's escape from Egyptian slavery, but far more important, it's about us escaping Egypt. In other words, what we have to understand is that getting out of Egypt is nearly as hard as getting Egypt out of us. Egypt is a word in Hebrew that means constraint. It means confined. Uh, it means narrowness. The various forms of thinking that inflict penalties upon us on an ongoing basis. And uh, we have to learn, for instance, that um, excessive taxation, confiscatory rates of taxation, lead to slavery, not just in what happened to the Israelites in uh, Egypt, but in Western countries, in fact, in many countries to this very day, where the strategy of laying ever heavier taxes and regulatory burdens upon the population leads in the ultimate direction of ultimately producing slaves to the state. And uh, Passover is a wonderful opportunity to actually spend a few hours on the night of the Seder reflecting, strategizing, learning, and above all, acquiring the tools of mental freedom that allow us to see what is going on even before it actually hits. 
And so if you would like to look into this, head over to the website, head over to the store. You're looking for a wonderful resource called How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder. It's in three volumes and all of them are packaged together and you get the whole bunch for you to have a very exciting experience this year and that is to actually lead your own Seder. The website rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, go over there and uh, make sure you get yourself a set of the three volumes of thought tools. Um, I assure you that this will be very worth your while. Um, I say that because if you're getting any value whatsoever from these podcasts, from the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show here, then you will really get a whole lot more from these three books. So go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, sign up to Thought Tools there. Make sure that you're on the mailing list and uh, take a look, read about Thought Tools, and you will uh, you will see that this is really something that uh, I created for you not in vain i think you will agree as as i think pretty much everyone who has it and again uh, tens and tens of thousands of people have it uh, i think you need it as well if you don't or you know somebody who does need it it's called the thought tool set three volumes and it's at rabbi daniel lappin.com uh, take a look at the children's alphabet book as well and uh, i think there is value i know there's value in that too the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, that would be me, reveals how the world really works. And one of the consequences of a world in which a realistic understanding of the future and the past is just as important as a, a realistic understanding of the present, is that when you take that away, you have uh, you have an accentuation of the NIMBY phenomenon, not in my backyard. Um, you have an, uh, an acceleration of people racing to obstruct and block projects. Because when you're focused on the present, right, all you see is the disruption that the project causes in the present. If I am only a present-oriented human being and there's a possibility of, of a new housing development or a new condo development going up in my neighborhood, I say, forget it. I don't want the extra traffic. I don't want the construction noise. I don't want the dust. No way. I'm going to be out there parading. I'm going to be obstructing. I'm going to go to city council and get them to deny zoning. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Because in the present... It's just nothing but a headache. But if, on the other hand, I'm able to develop the ability to see the future as clearly as I see the present, then I see a future where my neighborhood is more interesting. It's filled with more people. That means there are more facilities. That means there will be better restaurants. And that means that instead of me having to drive a mile and a half to the nearest dry cleaner, a dry cleaner will open up right near in the neighborhood. This is good. This is good, not bad. But the good comes tomorrow. And the bad is in the present. So people don't go for it. 
when people have been conditioned to be present fixated, then all of these things that cost now, but would be good in the future, get blocked. And conversely, all those things that feel good now, but would be terrible in the future, those get pushed very strongly. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, changing the laws of marriage to accept homosexual marriage. Uh, since this is not specifically the topic I'm discussing in this show, I'm not going to take the time right now. And again, in earlier shows, I have covered this, so you can go back. But I'm not going to take the time now to explain. If you're somebody who is not sure why making homosexual marriage the law of the land today is going to have dreadful repercussions down the road in the future, then you you need to bone up on that. You do need to find out more about it. <clears throat> but for those of you who at least have a glimpse of insight into why that would be, then you see that, again, when we produce a certain proportion of our population to be present fixated people, well then obviously homosexual marriage is what people want, right? Why would we deprive people of the opportunity to formalize their love? And we get that. Price to pay down the road, this is just like assuming debt. That's all, same thing. You're making things feel good now, ignoring the fact that the bill arrives at the end of the month. And so as a result of that, what happens is that projects, major projects, can no longer be built. That means the companies that grew during the 19th and 20th centuries on building projects, they go out of business. Talk about unemployment, but because there's nothing for them to do, right? A company that built the Panama Canal cannot readjust itself now to building uh, two-bedroom condominiums. That's, that's not their specialty, right? It's a different business altogether. And so if you go back to World War II, just to the middle of the 20th century, the, the 10 biggest the 10 biggest construction companies in the world were American. That's right. The 10 biggest construction companies in the world were American. Uh, America did, American companies did construction Panama Canal. They did construction in the United Kingdom. They did construction in Europe, in Switzerland. They did construction in Asia and Australia. Uh, there were the, lots of these companies used to build bridges and highways and tunnels all around the world. The 10 biggest construction companies in the world were all American. How about the 10 biggest construction companies in the world now? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what they are. Uh, the biggest is uh, ACS, if you're interested. It's a Spanish company. Um, the second biggest is Hochtief. German company. Uh, the next one is uh, Chinacom, which is the Chinese government construction company. That's the next biggest. The next one is Vinci, which is French. Um, after that comes the 
only American company on the top 10 list, which is Bechtel, San Francisco-based Bechtel. Last one standing. All the others are gone. I'm going through the list. This is literally the only American company on the list. The next one is a Brazilian company. Brazil! Brazil has a construction, an international construction company, better than we have. Ah, gosh. Uh, another, the next one down is French, Technip. Uh, Austria has one, another French one, and then Sweden. Skanska of, uh, of Sweden is the next biggest. On that whole list, there's now only one American company. And we are the country. You're, I mean, we started off at the beginning of the 19th century with the Erie Canal. Do you know how big a project the Erie Canal was in the days? I mean, you know, no caterpillar tractors. Uh, just think what it meant to dig 350 miles from the Hudson River to the Great Lakes. And, it, 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 I mean, it paid for itself thousands of times because it just uh, made, it made business and, and commerce thrive. Um, so today, today the Erie Canal would be probably a $3 billion project. Um, tell me, do you think the Transcontinental Railroad could be built today? Right, that was built like uh, 2,000 miles of track laid across the country, and this whole thing was done in five years, five, maybe six years. It took no time at all. Right today, in comparatively speaking, it's a hundred and twenty, a hundred and twenty billion dollar company. Uh, excuse me, a a twenty billion dollar project is is what it would be today. Could it be built? Could you imagine every single community along the way, every Indian tribe? I mean, everybody would come in and stop the progress. Right? Look how successfully. They managed to stop the pipeline project, obviously with the collusion of the president. Panama Canal, 51 miles across the isthmus separating North uh, America from South America. Unbelievable project, half a billion dollar project, right? Done in 10 years, right? In the opening years of the 20th century. And again, right? No caterpillar tractors. Unbelievable. It, it was done. The Hoover Dam was done before World War II. Grand Coulee Dam. These are massive projects, right? Big projects, $100 billion projects. Could they be done today? No. Today you can't build a dam anymore. How about the interstate highway system under President Eisenhower? 50,000 miles of multi-lane um, throughway paved across the country. That's right, 50,000 miles. Unbelievable. Could you see it happening today? No, of course not. Couldn't be done today. That's what happens when you are present-oriented. You only see the costs of projects, the present cost. You don't see the future benefits. And conversely, you only see current benefits and not future costs. Is it any wonder that once a society reaches a tipping point where a certain proportion of its population is present-centric, that it starts sliding downhill? Interestingly enough, in the Lord's language in Hebrew, 
the name for the Lord, God's name in Hebrew, actually <laughs> it breaks down to past, present, and future. Isn't that interesting? In other words, within the language itself, the fundamental nature of God is eternal, omni, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal. That's what it is. That's very interesting. So that idea that God was around yesterday, he'll be around tomorrow, even though I won't, that idea helps to reinforce. In other words, if you're somebody who's biblically oriented, Judeo-Christian culture, then that aspect of God is drummed into you from the time you're a little kid. You get this idea that, yes, I'm not the only creature in humanity. And that life didn't begin when I hit 12 years old, puberty. And it doesn't end when I go. No! Everything changes. And yet, uh, the state religion of secular fundamentalism taught in its temples. You know what the temples of secular fundamentalism are? I'll give you a clue. Their main administrative buildings usually look like Greek temples with columns. Right? I'm speaking about America's kindergartens. Some of you will know them as colleges and universities, but that's inappropriate. And uh, I would ask you to, to be sensitive to reality and be sensitive to some of the great colleges and universities of the past and sensitive to some of the great heads of those institutions and faculties of those great institutions and how you dishonor them by calling today's kindergartens, colleges, and universities. It's plainly wrong. We shouldn't do it. And these are, you know, if you want to say kindergartens for adults, you can say that. But they're not that different, are they, from kindergartens for little kids? Kindergartens are kindergartens. Uh, we try and protect little kids in kindergartens from things that would upset them. We try and protect big kids in kindergartens from things that will upset them. There's not a whole lot of difference. Uh, little kids in kindergartens throw tantrums when you say something that they don't want to hear, like time to go in for your nap. They put their hands over their ears and they kick their feet and they yell, no, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Uh, look at some of the videos of what happens at big kids' kindergartens. Nothing is different. So in uh, kindergartens, the state religion is taught very thoroughly. Present is what matters. The present is what counts. Except when you're making up things about the future, then you can talk about the future, of course. Um, even Islam, which is a religion of, of which I'm not an enthusiast, uh, even Islam, not to the same extent as Judeo-Christian biblical civilization, but even Islam, to some extent, um, makes its adherents aware of past and future not just the present. Now, I pointed out, in the past I pointed out, and I'm sure you know this, that the date of 11th of September uh, was not chosen at random back in 2001 for that uh, classic uh, attack against America, which was designed to launch the new caliphate. Uh, no, not at all. Uh, that was meant to pick up the battle from the last time that the West defeated Islam, which was uh, 11th of September, 1683. Uh, the uh, Ottoman Empire was poised to take over Europe. They were at the gates of Vienna. And it was on the 11th of September that uh, King John of Poland arrived with a big band of Christian knights. And the battle took place early in the morning of the 12th of September. 
and um, the Ottomans, the, the Muslims were routed, and uh, they were turned back. And that was the last time that the Muslim world picked up sword against the West until the 11th of September, 2001. An awareness of time does come from religion, even Islam, but ever so much more from the uh, biblical faiths of Judaism and Christianity. <clears throat> and so once we see uh, future and past as just as important and maybe sometimes more important than the present, so many things fall into place. Uh, for one thing, you know, you'll build things to outlive you. You'll work on doing things in a way to improve your kids' lives. Right? If tomorrow doesn't matter, then raising great kids is not worth the trouble. Just leave it to the government. If today is all that matters, then why invest in something that will only fully yield its fruits in years to come? Why plant orchards and vineyards that, that won't ripen until you are old? And if you look around, you'll see that a culture that has been conditioned to be present-centric, indeed, is not doing much of those things anymore. Tragically. But that is the truth. And so um, I want to remind you of the, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. I, I know you must almost feel like just mentally switching off when I say this, but um, uh, I hope you won't do that. Uh, I think it's it's sort of it's part of it's part of our relationship, and uh, it's you know this is not this is not a, a show. I don't ask you to make donations or contributions, but uh, I do ask you to take a look and see whether the resources into which I put an enormous amount of work and effort and creativity uh, might include things that could improve your life. If so, then go ahead and get them and benefit us both. If not, obviously not. I, don't, I certainly don't expect you. I mean, and I'm absolutely serious. And those of you who know me know that I'm serious about this, obviously. Um, if upon review, you say to yourself, nah, you know what? Not for me. Nothing here that can help me. Nothing that is practically going to bring me added value or benefit in my... No, then obviously not. No, not talking about that. But it's rabbidaniellappin.com and... Uh, I have a hunch that if you take a look at the Thought Tool books, you will find value in those. That's uh, the thing. That, that's what I'm drawing your attention to uh, in this show, along with the Children's Alphabet book, which uh, is more than it might appear. And uh, that's all I'll say for right now. Uh, which means, my friends, that to uh, my disappointment, it is, in fact... Time for me to say goodbye. And that means that until next week, I, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wish for you a week of good health and prosperity. And I know that everything else you will take care of for yourself. God bless.